chapter 3, Mishnah 20. This is the final teaching that we have from Rabbi Akiva. Hu haya Omer, he would say, Hakol nasun be'eravon. Everything is given as collateral. Umetsuda prusa kolachayim. And a net is spread all over the living. Hachanus psucha. The store is open. Vachen v'nimakif. And the merchant extends credit. Vapinkas pasuach. The ledger is open. Vahayakoseves. And the hand records. Vuchalarosalilvos yava v'yilva. Whoever wants to borrow may come and borrow. Vahagaboyim achazirim. Tadir b'chol yom and from adam. The collectors make the rounds every day constantly and collect payment from the person, midaito, with his knowledge, ushalomidaito, without his knowledge, and they have upon what to rely, they have evidence of, of the claim, of the debt, and the judgment is a judgment of truth, and everything is prepared for the festive final banquet. Everyone, all the commentaries, agree that what Robert Heath is telling us here is a mushal. It's a parable. It's an analogy with a very powerful lesson. Now, I think that Rabbi Tiva, as we saw in previous weeks, he was someone that took life very seriously. He was someone that, with his own fortitude, made made a shift in his life from being an Enneagramist to become a Torah scholar, but not just any Torah scholar, becoming the absolute greatest Torah scholar of his era, and in effect, being the one to transmit Torah to the next generation at a very critical time in Jewish history. So he's a very serious person, and this is a very serious message. And I think it's not, I would say, inspirational in the traditional sense. It's not about making us feel good. It's about being serious, and it's about motivating us to act. And I think with that introduction, we can try to analyze what his message is. Because remember, in the previous Mishnah, he talked about how that when bad things happen to us, it's really good things. So that's a very powerful idea, but it's one that's somewhat hard to absorb. It's hard to be at peace with. And this is a very similar idea that's being conveyed over here, Again, something that's very useful, but a little bit difficult to, to swallow, even though we may know it's true. So what's the parable and what's the lesson? So he begins by saying everything is given as a collateral. A collateral is something when you owe someone something and they want to put a lien on your house because the bank lends you money to buy a house and they have a lien, a collateral on your house. It means if you don't pay the debt – they have something of value to be able to use it to to repay the debt. Everything that you have is a collateral in the hands of God. You, your money, your possessions, your body, your soul, your your children, everything is owned by God and you owe him something. He gave you something of tremendous value and you owe him and he has collateral. Of course, what did he give you of tremendous value? He gave you life. He gave you free will. He gave you intellect. He gave you the ability to, to choose which half 
of yourself, your body or your soul, you're going to favor. There's no greater gift than that. Even the angels don't have that. The only things that have that is humans. And that's a tremendous gift. But it's not a gift that he gave us for free. It's not a gift that he gave us with no strings attached. It's a gift that he gave us and he maintains a collateral. And what that is, in fact, telling you that everything you have is really a gift from God, but it's on loan from God and he has the ability to demand it back and he has collateral in his hand. And the Rabbeinu Yonah and all the commentators have their own, of course, their own language of how to present this idea. But he gives a uh, he gives an analogy of a man who walks into a city and doesn't find any occupants in the city, and he starts walking into people's homes, and he finds a table, and on the table it's a fully set table full of all kinds of food and drink and delicacies. So he starts eating and drinking. He's like, ah, oh, this is all mine. I acquired it. It belongs to me. I can do whatever I want with it. But he doesn't know that the true owners are watching him from a distance. The walls have ears. You're being surveilled. And you have to pay for what you ate. You're taking something, but you're going to have to pay it, pay it back as well. In life, we're taking from God. God's giving us life. He's given us the ability to choose. He's given a body, given us a soul given us opportunities, and we don't have to pay it back unless we do what he wants with those gifts. There's a, an idea that my grandfather used to always share that comes from the great Rabbi Israel Salanter. He was one of the giants of the 19th century. And he based his idea upon the refrain that we say in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the days in between those two festivals we ask God to inscribe us in the book of life, lema'ancha Elohim chayim, life that is for your sake, O God. That's what we want. We want it not just to be in the book of life, but what kind of life? The life for the sake of God. So what does that mean? So he explains that this world is like an expensive hotel. You go to a hotel, they take your credit card before you check in. For incidentals, whatever may come, may come. We don't know what's going to happen. Let's just, for incidentals. And then you may find that the mini fridge is stocked with alcohol. All kinds of incidentals. And you don't seem to pay up front. But we know that the hotel's got your credit card and you could see, it seems like everything's free, but actually the price is very inflated. And therefore, we find that many of our great antecedents and predecessors would be very hesitant to enjoy life too much. Now, of course, it's important to note, this is not for us. We're simple people. We're trying to do what's right. But Jacob, what does Jacob want? When he prays to God, give me bread to eat and a garment to wear, asking for the basic bare minimum. Why? Because he's worried. It's an expensive hotel. Prices are all inflated. I don't want to ask for too much. Similarly, and this is relating to Rabbi Akiva, we've told the story before, when Rabbi Akiva visits his teacher, Rabbi Eliezer, on his deathbed, and the great rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, is writhing in agony and pain, 
all the students start crying, and Rabbi Kiva starts laughing as if, as if it's hilarious, as if it's very funny. And they say to him, why are you laughing? And he says to them, well, why are you crying? Well, we, we see this great rabbi, he's a veritable Torah scroll, and he is in pain. How can we not mourn? How can we not cry? So Rabbi Kiva responds, well, that's exactly why I'm laughing. Because his whole life, I'm, I'm watching the great rabbi, and things work out for him. His crops don't fail. His wine doesn't turn into vinegar. His honey doesn't spoil. His flax doesn't get smitten. And I'm worried, did he maybe take too much from the hotel and he's going to have a lot to pay when he checks out? And therefore, I'm terrified that maybe he, in Olam Abba, in the spiritual, in the afterlife, he's going to have a hefty bill to pay. But now that I see that he's suffering, I know that his bill is being paid. And therefore, I'm delighted. That's what Rebekah tells him. A similar idea we see over here. What you have from God is God giving it to you, but he wants payment. He wants repayment. And he's got all the keys, all the cards. He has collateral, and you really can't escape him. And therefore, if you pay it, you should know, Rebekah is telling you, it's good you're paying off your debt from God, who has the ability to do whatever he wants to extract repayment. This is like a scary picture that we remember Israel Salanta paints for us, that there's this expensive hotel and we owe God so much and the prices are inflated and he's going to demand repayment. But there's a loophole. That word, by the way, has such power. The word loophole. There, there, there is a way within the system to avoid the problem. What's a loophole? That's what we say on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We want life, but what kind of life? Life that's for you. So his example of this is, if you have a diplomat or an ambassador representing their host nation, they go to the hotel, then they could eat whatever they want because the bill is being sent back to the mothership to pay it off. They have an expense account from their host nation. If we say we're going to be ambassadors of God in this world, he's going to tell us, okay, you have an expense account. Enjoy, provided that you are doing good work, provided that you're being a faithful ambassador for God and for and for the Torah, then you could be assured that you're living for God and therefore you don't have to worry about it because all the debts that you're accruing, they're all covered by your sponsor, by the Almighty. Now, if we read this first idea that there is a, a collateral and all our debts are going to be paid, we may say, you know what, let's try to escape. So what is the very next thing Rabbi Kiva tells us? There is a net that is spread all over the living. It's the long reach of the law. You could try to run to Argentina. Do you think they want to extradite you? You know what? God has dominion there too. You go to the moon, God has dominion there too. You want to hide in a doomsday bunker? You're safe from nuclear bombs, but you're not safe from God. There's no way to hide from God. Of course, we know that, but sometimes we act as if that was not true. And then we read, again, the similar kind of idea that the the store is open and we could buy everything on credit. And of course, if you give a kid a credit card, there's two kinds of kids. There's the one kid that says, wow, this is an, a 
blank check. I can do whatever I want with it. And then one realizes, no, no, no. When the month is over, I'm going to have to pay the bill. And therefore, there's two ways to go about that. You have the one guy who says, I'm only going to use debit cards. If I don't, if I don't have the money, I don't, I'm not going to spend it. And then the other person who's prudent enough to say, you know what? I'm going to get the credit card, get all the miles, but pay it off at the end of the month and not pay the, you know, 26% APR because again, it's, it's very inflated. But we get to this world and we don't get the monthly statements. We just think, we assume that everything's free. And he tells us that's, that's what it is. The store is open and there's credit being extended without exhaustive Background checks without running our credit scores in uh, TransUnion and uh, Equifax. God's not running it. We don't, we don't see it. We don't, we're not applying for credit and we're not getting the monthly statements. And we think that it's all, it's all fair game. But the truth is the ledger is open. Every deed, every action, both good and bad is being recorded. The hand records and it keeps an exact tally of our deeds. And the commentaries point out that God doesn't need to open the ledger after someone does a deed. Moreover, the hand that writes, who's the hand that, whose hand writes, inscribes the deeds of people? It's the person who does it themselves. And the way the commentaries tell us, it's a little scary, that you get up to heaven... And you find, uh, you know, God's going to show you a ledger. This is, these are your deeds. And you say, well, these aren't my deeds. Well, well, let's, let, let's open it up. And it sees it's actually your handwriting. You yourself, via your actions, are spiritually inscribing those deeds onto your soul. And it's essentially there for, for eternity. Yes, we could do, we could repent, which is the, which is the miracle of repentance. That the very deeds that you did, that you wrote, that you, you, you signed your own confession. Is there any greater piece of evidence than that? You, we have the document written in your handwriting. Not extracted by coercion. You wrote this willingly. We have it over here, the evidence. And comes along repentance and the evidence disappears. Moreover, the evidence is replaced with a different document saying you did a mitzvah. You did right. You acted, you acted righteously. That's the miracle of repentance, but again, he's giving us a very sober, maybe even startling, but truthful and valuable idea to keep in mind that our actions in this world matter and have eternal consequences. Again, he's trying to bring it to life, to, to animate it for us. There's a ledger, there's a hand, is, is this an, is that an actual hand? Of, of, of course, he's trying to paint a picture for us to make us absorb the message. Whoever wants to borrow, can come borrow. The collectors are there. Don't think that the Almighty doesn't have the ability to extract repayment. They'll come after you. You're going to repay with your knowledge and without your knowledge. What does that mean? So the commentaries tell us that sometimes we are we are paid and it's via our knowledge. So God throws us a curveball. We suffer a little bit. And if if we're righteous, we'll say, oh, we know why we suffer. Because we did this and this misdeed. And therefore, we're getting, we're getting punished for that misdeed. 
And that's when we are repaying with our own knowledge. It means we're aware of what's happening and then we're going to fix the underlying problem. I had a, an example this past week. My son, one of my sons, he has a, um, a Segway, which is basically like a hoverboard on steroids. He finished a bu- studying a, a book of Mishnah. I told him, you finished the book of Mishnah? I'm buying you a Segway. And these are not very inexpensive toys. And this is for a 10-year-old kid. So I decided, I think it's very important for him to, to face up this challenge and to do it. And he did it. And he's had it now for, for a year. And he takes it to school every day and he, around the whole neighborhood. And these things are terrifying. My father's like, give it to me. I got this. And he gets on and he fell off and he dislocated his shoulder. And then one of the other kids in the neighborhood is like, yeah, I, I could ride it. And my kids just loan it out. And this is just you know, a, a parent's nightmare. The kids fall, the kid falls off the Segway. He gets a concussion and then you feel terrible. So I told my, my, my kids, actually my other son, Yehoshua, this is my, the old son of Akiva, he got one for me. My second son, Yehoshua, he was in a contest where who studies the most Mishnayas, and then you get a raffle ticket, and then he, he happened to have won his own Segway. So there's two Segways in our house. And both of them are scooting around the neighborhood with their, with their Segways, and they take it to school, and that's their, that's their mode of transportation. And they do it like flawlessly, effortlessly. It's like as easy as walking for them. Probably easier. So I told my I told my boys, I said, okay, from now on, unless someone's mother or your friends, unless their mother sends a a a written documentation that she's okay with them borrowing the segue, you cannot lend it to your friends. I don't need to deal with this. Right? I don't need to deal with the, with this problem of kids borrowing the segue and then hurting themselves because of our experience. I actually went on the segue once and I Embarrass myself pretty badly. I, I can ride it, but I try to go up a, a – my kids go they, – they go up stairs and they go up bumps. They go up cur- – they, they, they could do it all. I try to go up a bump and in, in pretty dramatic fashion, fell off of it, hurt my back. And my back still sometimes hurts from it. So I'm too embarrassed to tell anyone about it. So I have to suffer my, uh, myself. But of course, you all I could tell. Anyhow, so my son, he's riding a Segway. And he falls off and he hurts his knee. And he, these things go 10, 12 miles an hour and he falls on the asphalt. So his knee's all bleeding and now he has this terrible, horrible scab. But he tells my wife, he says, I know exactly why I fell off. I know why. Because when I got home previously, I took off my tzitzis. And there's all kinds of sources in, in Jewish literature. That when someone wears tzitzis, it's a protection. It's like a bulletproof vest. And my son, t- my son tells my wife, "I know why I fell off. I fell off because I took off my tzitzis. I know that. So he tell- that's what he tells her, and then he, tell- he repeats it to me. This is a powerful thing. This is an eleven-year-old kid who gets it. He he gets it. So is it true or not? I think it probably is true because again, if he if he comes up with it on his own, it's probably true. But it's a very powerful lesson." This is what's being described here in the Mishnah, that sometimes people are going to be paid, so to speak, and they'll know it. They're collecting payment with this knowledge, and that means that the payment itself will prevent the future mishap to lead to the next payment. You know, if you have to pay the bill, you have to pay the fine, you're quite likely to take preventative steps to 
not do the same mistake again, not to have to pay the fine a second time. But unfortunately, we have people that are forced to pay the fine and they don't connect the dots, they don't take the message home, they don't learn the lesson. Which is why Rabbi Kiva has given us a very valuable insight to tell us to recognize this, this, this format, this, 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 uh, this architecture, this framework and, and, and giving us this valuable lesson, valuable lesson to make sure that we do take the lesson home and we do take steps to when we have to pay, we realize why we're paying and therefore we, we correct it. I, I think there's also an element of, of comfort in the, in this idea to know that we matter. Her life matters. Our actions matter. Like there is a an eternal ledger of of our life. We're not living on you know some sort of island just to be forgotten and into oblivion. I mean that's the flip side of this idea. Of course, it's a terrifying idea to think about the fact that there's this big brother, so to speak, that's monitoring everything and surveilling everything, and every slight deed is accounted for. It has to be recompensed, has to be punished if it's a sin, has to be cleansed if it's a sin, has to be rewarded if it's a mitzvah. On one hand, it could be, it could feel very stifling or we could feel smothered a little bit. There's no, we have no freedom, so to speak. And he does say that <laughs> there is a net that is spread out everywhere. There's no way to hide. But on the other hand, I think there's also a very positive takeaway from this idea. And that is that even our good deeds, don't just vanish into into nothingness. They're all very valuable. And I want to add another point. We just read Parshas Nasso, the longest Parsha in the Torah. And there's a fascinating chapter dedicated to the gifts of the Nisim, to the gifts of the heads of the tribes. Each one of the heads of the tribes brought an identical gift in the 12 days following the inauguration of the tabernacle. A silver basin, uh, a gold ladle, various sacrifices, and it lists them. It's like uh, each one of them is like, you know, seven or eight verses. It lists the gift of each one of the tribes day by day. The first day was this tribe and this leader of the tribe and this is what he brought. And then repeats the identical formulation for the subsequent 11 heads of the tribes. And all the commentators ask, you know, is there a simple way to say this? This was the gift. And it was brought by 12 heads of tribes in 12 successive days. Why does it repeat the exact nature of the gift of the donation 12 times? So one of the answers is that these same Nassim, these same leaders of the tribes, they were criticized for not making a donation when the tabernacle was being financed. Moshe makes this call to fundraise. Okay, we need all these materials. We need gold, silver, copper, various kinds of wool, various kinds of wood. He's making the fundraising call and the the Nassim say, we're not going to give now. We'll wait till everyone else gives and then we'll give whatever's left over. And the Torah criticizes them by deducting a letter from their name. It says Nassim and it deducts a letter from from their name. When the Torah gives you an incomplete name, it spells your name, so to speak, incorrectly. By reducing a letter, it's it's harsh criticism of the Torah. So the commentaries pointed out that when the Nesim, the, the princes, the leaders of the tribes, when they make a mistake, 
and they do something wrong, they're criticized by having one letter taken off their collective name. Twelve people, one letter is taken away from all twelve people. They're called the, the, the princes, but almost as if there's no I. P-R-N-C-E-S. That's how it would be spelled in the Torah. Or P-R-I-N-C-S. There's a letter taken away. They're the princes, but they're not the full princes. And when the Torah wants to lavish them with praise, when they do the right thing, when they they did jump ahead and make these donations, how does the Torah do it? Spend 70 verses. Each one of them gets their own time in the spotlight. Each one of them, we describe exactly what they brought. And that, I think, is very comforting to us to know that there's a grave disparity between how God criticizes us, how God punishes us, and how God rewards us. So net-net... In aggregate, we're very thankful for this because, yes, it's a little bit scary to think about all the things that we did wrong and all the debts that we have to pay and and how much did we squander the tremendous gifts that God gave us and nothing is lost and everything is written in the ledger and there's no way to hide. That's terrifying. But on the flip side, think about the positive takeaway. Every single good thing that we do, that is amplified a hundred times. The Talmud says actually 500 times. God rewards us 500 times more than he punishes us. So uh, one sin and one mitzvah, identical, the punishment of the, of the sin, let's say if it's one unit, the, the reward for the corresponding mitzvah is 500 units. So isn't that great? That now we have everything accounted for, even the mitzvahs, the positive is also accounted for, and nothing's lost on that, and those credits, so to speak, are accrued to us, and nothing is lost from that account. So I think that's the flip side of, of, of this idea. And that's how he ends off. How does he end off? The judgment is judgment of truth. When everything is known, maybe there's a, a sense of uh, invasion of our privacy. But everything's known, the judgment will be indeed true. And then he ends off with this very optimistic conclusion Everything is prepared for the banquet. Banquet sounds like a nice party. What's the banquet? So the commentaries tell us that it refers to all about That's the reward. So the same reality that every action is accounted for and punished, and there's, there's, there's the collectors, and there's nowhere to hide, and there's a net spread, that same reality contributes to the fact that the afterlife, the reward, the Olamaba, everything's prepared for it because of that same uh, preceding reality that God keeps track of everything. The hand is writing down every deed and therefore all of that also facilitates our reward in Olamaba. And Rashi does us all a favor by telling us that even the wicked have something to hope for in Olamaba because of this system, because if people are just viewed as, you know, black or white, righteous or wicked, then we could say, well, the wicked's wicked. Okay, they're not granted admittance to Olamaba. But if everything is accounted for, the wicked is maybe 98% wicked, but 2% positive. And that's also accounted for over here because the net doesn't miss anything, the ledger doesn't miss anything, everything is accounted for, and there's no scarcity of resources by God which is something hard for us to imagine because we live in a world of scarcity and there is no scarcity for God. 
So there's no scarcity of resource. Everything is accounted for, and therefore everything can be prepared for the for for the meal, so to speak, because our good deeds are also not lost. So again, this is an idea I think is a little bit scary for us. It's not the typical inspirational message. It's more of an it's more of a message that hopefully will get us to take life more seriously. That's what our people wants of us: take life more seriously. He, of course, is the poster child of that. The post of child of someone who grabs life by the horns, who says, it's up to me. I could do it. My life is in my hands. I'm going to make the choice. I'm not going to allow my background, my upbringing to determine the kind of life I'm going to live. Remember, Kiva's father was a convert, our sages tell us. He was an outsider, in effect. He was ignorant. He didn't know how to read Hebrew until he was 40. How does someone like that catapult themselves to the absolute pinnacle of the Jewish world? Grit determination, commitment to these kinds of ideas, to taking life seriously and recognizing that if the Almighty gave it to you, he believes in you. He believes in you that you could do it. He believes that by giving you those gifts, he's entrusting you with the sacred task of using those gifts for for the right purposes. Robert Kiva took those gifts and made sure that he employed them and he deployed them for what the Almighty put him on this earth for, and he's showing us some of his methodology of how he did that. He took life seriously. He recognized that even though some of us may think that we're at a disadvantage, we're not. We're not not at a disadvantage. Everything matters. God has the ability to keep track of everyone and every deed and every thought and every speech. Everything is taken into account, account. And on one hand, that means that everything that we do wrong, we either have to cleanse or have to pay for it, but also that everything that we do right is accounted for and there's a permanent record and we are using our deeds to prepare for our ultimate banquet in Almabah.